Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and today we're going to delve into Juneteenth. Now, if you're not already familiar with Juneteenth or you just don't know much about it, maybe you've been embarrassed to acknowledge that you don't really know a lot about what it represents, we have an excellent guest today who's going to catch us up. I think it's safe to say that Juneteenth is becoming more mainstream. It began becoming more formally recognized, for instance, by large segments of corporate America last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, when companies like Nike, Twitter, Square, Allstate, J.P. Morgan, Target, and many others began recognizing Juneteenth as a paid holiday. And this year, I imagine that trend has spread to more businesses and smaller businesses like our agency, History Factory, where we will recognize Juneteenth for the first time in our history and give our staff the day off and provide them with resources and insights to have a better understanding of its meaning. So here to give us all a deeper understanding of what Juneteenth represents, how it came about as a holiday, and to provide some historical context for this moment in the history of civil rights and race relations in America is Professor Matthew Delmont. Dr. Delmont is the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth College. He is a Guggenheim Fellow and expert on African-American history and the history of civil rights, who has consulted and spoken with Fortune 500 companies, universities, and community organizations regarding civil rights, diversity, and inclusivity, and how to reckon with the history of racism in America. Dr. Delmont is the author of four books, and you can find out more about those on his website, mattdelmont.com. And his next book to be published by Viking Books next year will be Half American, The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. So here's my conversation with Professor Matthew Delmont about Juneteenth. Professor Delmont, thank you so much for joining History Factory Plugged In. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Our pleasure. Well, let, let's first start with, um, before we get into sort of the specifics of, of Juneteenth, um, I know from, from my history courses, I've always thought of the end of slavery as, as Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Pro- Proclamation, 1863. Um, but, you know, the, the world didn't, didn't move quite as quickly back then. And, and, and even now, uh, history often is, is not exactly uh, uh, a, a linear process. And, and uh, the, end of, the end of slavery was, was far more messy, uh, probably, and far more complex than, uh, than, than just a, a proclamation. Um, so I'm curious, just if you could share for our listeners a little bit about, you know, how would you characterize the end of slavery and where did that leave millions of, of, of African-Americans who were enslaved and, and how did that process play out? Yeah, thanks, Jason. I think that's a great place to start. So when I think about the end of slavery, I think more about a process and a struggle as opposed to a single moment. Um, so as you mentioned, the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Lincoln in January of 1863. Of course, it's signed during the middle of the Civil War. So it's a tremendously powerful document on paper, and it does kind of change the complexion of what the war is being fought over. Um, from that point forward, it's a war to end slavery. Um, but it doesn't actually free any of the 4 million enslaved people uh, who were in the United States at the time in the Southern states. Um, that doesn't happen until uh, the Union is able to uh, take control of those Southern, southern lands, and eventually it doesn't really happen until the 13th Amendment is passed in December of 1865. So you think about the kind of lived reality on the ground for enslaved people in late 1863, 64, even most of 1865, 
very little changes in terms of their day-to-day -day life. Um, in Texas, where Juneteenth originates, there are 250,000 enslaved Black people, um, two, uh, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation signed in the middle of 1865, they're still enslaved. Their condition hasn't really changed. And so we think about the end of slavery, it really is, it's a process. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation, I would say, kind of kicks it off in the kind of abolition that's been going on for the prior decades. The signing of the 13th, the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December, in, um, of 18 of uh, 65, December of 1865, that's the, the kind of legal end of slavery. Um, but even still, for enslaved people, uh, there isn't, uh, there are not a lot of options for them in the South. Um, the, most of them are still propertyless, they're poor, they go back to working for many of the same uh, plantation owners, either for wages or sharecroppers. Uh, they have a brief moment uh, during Reconstruction where it looks like economic rights, political rights are going to be expanded, and then that opportunity is really quickly foreclosed. By 1877. And so slavery sort of ends by definition, but the, the sort of rights and freedoms that Black people anticipated in 1865 are still decades later in, in terms of actually being realized. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you can elaborate on that from the perspective of, it's interesting your point about sort of the expectations. I mean, do you, from, from your experience and study, what and this might not be a fair question, so we can always cut it later. But I'm curious to get more clarity on that in terms of were there expectations that ultimately were were not met in terms of, you know, I, I can't I can't imagine the, the circumstances of someone you know living in in slavery for for many generations. Ultimately, now there's this new potential, and then it it sort of you know ultimately you know obviously doesn't come to realize for for many decades thereafter, as you share, but what were kind of the expectations if you were a slave in 1864 and all of a sudden you have this, this potential for, for freedom? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to like, what does freedom mean? Uh, and for most enslaved people, freedom meant uh, freedom across all aspects of their lives. So freedom in terms of mobility, uh, their ability to leave the South, move to different regions, freedom in terms of who they could marry and how they could choose to form their, their family networks and reconnect with kin freedom in terms of where they work uh, and being able to sort of set their own wage for, for work and get paid for their, for their labor, freedom in terms of education, in terms of church and religious um, affiliations. So really freedom across all, all domains of life. Um, some of those come true after 1865, but many of them are foreclosed. Uh, think about the question of mobility. Um, most African-Americans are either ordered or compelled to stay basically in place. They're not really allowed to leave the places where they had been formerly enslaved. Um, in terms of political rights, there's a, that moment after Civil War III Reconstruction where uh, African-Americans have uh, enhanced voting rights, have the ability to serve elective office. You see a number of, of Black politicians serving and representing the Southern states. Two decades after the Civil War, that opportunity is foreclosed uh, intentionally because of the, the rise of more white supremacist um, Southern governments. Um, I think finally, in terms of economic rights, um, so there, there was very little in terms of restitution or reparations given to enslaved African-Americans. There was the, the floated idea of 40 acres that would be given to sort of give uh, formerly enslaved people uh, a start, to give them property and be able to sort of um, start their own livelihoods and start their own um, kind of economic futures. Uh, that doesn't happen. That land in the South is eventually given back to white plantation owners who owned it before the Civil War. And so that is really one of the kind of foundational questions and, and uh, fault lines in, in American history, that sort of moment at the end of the Civil War where freedom is, is promised and is signaled to on paper, but in terms of the lived realities, um, the, the ideas of freedom aren't fully, uh, aren't fully realized for African Americans for, for generations afterwards. Yeah. 
And and you mentioned before um, sort of the, the origins of, of of Juneteenth being in Texas, um, I believe after after the Civil War. Um, can can you share more about what Juneteenth is and 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 how it started? Yeah, so Juneteenth originated in Texas, and it's really a combination of June and 19th. So that's where Juneteenth comes from. Um, it signifies the date when the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas, June 19th, 1865, and basically delivered news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Up until that point, the enslaved people in Texas had been, been working under the same conditions they had been for, for generations. When the Union Army finally arrives in Galveston, they announce that uh, slaves will be free. Um, just basically brings the news of the Emancipation Proclamation some two and a half years later to Texas. Uh, it's a, a moment of tremendous um, change in Texas. It doesn't happen overnight, but the, the announcement of this is tremendously powerful. For formerly enslaved people, this means, in Texas, it, this means freedom. This is what they expect. This is going to be the sort of new chapter in their lives. For a lot of white Texans, though, it's, it's very concerning. It's like the world's been turned upside down. And so you see these pressures play out kind of in microcosm in Texas, that for African-Americans, they see this as the, the moment that freedom is finally going to be realized. For white Texans, they see us as the moment that they want to try to contain and try to um, kind of push black people back into a second class, second class citizenship. But Juneteenth becomes powerful become, because it's the, the date that black Texans point to as their emancipation date. And so it's celebrated from 1866 every year onward um, as a set of kind of community gatherings that mix um, sporting events, picnics, cookouts, um, spirituals, uh, prayer, Kind of a mix of uh, cookout and a church revival. Um, that's a moment of, of joy and, and mourning for what had, had come before, but also um, the kind of better futures that people hope to create. Um, but it is distinctly a Texas holiday for the first several generations. Oh, interesting. So it was actually distinct, distinctively a Texas holiday um, for, for a long time. It was, it was. I mean, obviously, uh, the moment of emancipation is tremendously powerful for uh, Black people in the United States and also across the diaspora. But Juneteenth as a, as a holiday is really is really a Texas thing. Um, it starts to spread to other states in the late 1800s and then into the early and mid 1900s as tech, Black Texans move elsewhere, as they migrate to sort of the neighboring states around Texas and then eventually to California and to Midwest and to the Northeast. That's how Juneteenth um, comes to be more of a national uh, Black holiday as opposed to just a, a Texas thing. Okay, interesting. And I know I, I correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you you shared that you weren't familiar with it until you were in college yourself. Correct? Yeah, that's true. So I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, and I, there very well might have been people celebrating Juneteenth in Minneapolis, but within my family, within my community, it wasn't something that was on on my radar. Um, I didn't learn about it until I went to college and read uh, Ralph Ellison's uh, novel Juneteenth. So he's best known for writing Invisible Man. He had a, a second novel that he never quite finished called Juneteenth, and that was the, the first time I came across it. Um, and then since then, obviously, um, I didn't know at the time in college, but I went on to become a, a professional historian, and so learned a lot more about a lot more about Juneteenth. Um, I think for me, what I really um, kind of take from that learning over the last couple of decades is not just about what happened, or the fact that Juneteenth sort of started when it did or that spread, but, but what it meant. And I think what's so powerful is that Juneteenth is sort of a consistently evolving holiday that each year there's something that um, is meaningful for, for Black Americans and for Black communities. And so it's always a chance to remember this history of emancipation, the history of slavery, but also to reflect on what's going on in the present. And so that looked different in the 1870s, looked different in the 1920s, the 1960s, and then it looks different today. But those, that sense of continuity and tradition, I think, is just really powerful. 
Yeah, and to that point, I'm curious if you if you have a perspective on how the holiday, other than obviously becoming more national uh, from its origins as really a, a regional uh, uh, celebration there in Texas, how has the holiday evolved over time? So it has ebbed and flowed over time. Uh, there have been moments where Juneteenth has been more pronounced. I think in the early part of the 20th century, you saw more celebrations. It, it waned a little bit uh, during World War II era. And then it came back um, quite prominently in the 1970s, uh, after the civil rights era, as more Black communities wanted to publicly celebrate cultural pride. You started to see Juneteenth more publicly. And then uh, eventually in, in 1980, Texas becomes the first state to recognize it as a, um, or to commemorate it as a holiday. I think today 47 states um, commemorate it in some way, and then a handful of states have started to honor it as a, as a state holiday since, since 2020. So I think that since that it's been celebrated for more than 150 years, I think it's powerful, but also that it has sort of migrated across the country and kind of had an ebb and flow. Um, I think that's really important. I think one of the things that has stood out to me too about a sort of ongoing tradition that um, I've learned about with Juneteenth is that often the Emancipation Proclamation um, is read at Juneteenth. I think particularly in the, the earlier years, the Emancipation Proclamation was a, was a key part of, of Juneteenth. And what I think is powerful about that when I reflect on it is for those first 50 years when Juneteenth was celebrated after the end of the Civil War up until the early part of the 1900s, you would have had formerly enslaved people at those Juneteenth celebrations. And so to think about what it would have meant for them to be reading or to be hearing their Emancipation Proclamation read and knowing that that was something that impacted them personally, uh, that they would have still had the scars both physically and, and psychologically from having been, uh, been enslaved, having been treated as property, but then to be able to celebrate with their communities this, this moment of emancipation. But also, I think, thinking about that language of the Emancipation Proclamation and the promises of freedom, and for folks who are living in a time by the late 1800s, early 1900s, where Jim Crow is sort of fully entrenched in the South, and they've lost voting rights, and they, they see uh, lynchings happening in, in neighboring communities, there's a, a kind of sense of loss, almost, I think, with thinking about um, the Emancipation Proclamation and hearing that read and thinking about what had been what had been gained and what had been lost and what, what fights still remained. Um, and so that sense of, of all that history being uh, coming together on a single single day or single holiday is just really powerful for me. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's an interesting point because when you think about most of the holidays that we recognize, they don't have that level of accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's such a clear line of accessibility between what this holiday must mean um, for African-Americans. And to your point, for many decades, it was literally, you know, people that that were either they had experienced that themselves, or they were only a generation or two or three away from that. So it absolutely provides a, a much more stronger um, sense of of of, of reality uh, compared to many holidays, which you know, obviously their their origins may be you know centuries ago, if you will. Any other? I mean, not not that there's anything more more uh, compelling to, than that, but any other. Uh, sort of interesting things you've you've learned about how it may be uh, recognized or commemorated in different regions of the country? Um, I think the only other thing is just kind of the, the random tidbits of anything, anytime things become regional is they take on different regional flair. Um, and so I think the different uh, kind of food traditions that would show up in different parts of the country. So um, a Texas cookout is going to look different than a Chicago cookout, different than an Atlanta cookout. And so I think that's interesting. Um, the kind of like pageant culture that's a, a has come about through Juneteenth. So if you look at some of the pictures, there are lots of parades and um, kind of Miss Juneteenth being named, um, which I think is interesting. And, and it goes along with the idea that Juneteenth is supposed to be a moment of joy and celebration. And so it's a time to 
to, to be proud of one's cultural heritage, but also to, to uplift young people um, through the kind of uh, pageants and parades that they do. Um, and then an early anecdote that I didn't know about until recently was there in some of the early Juneteenth celebrations there were actually um, early fireworks where they would pack trees full of gunpowder and then light them on fire and have these kind of um, do-it-yourself firework, fireworks um, uh, uh, shows for the, for the communities. And so I think that's the, the history that Juneteenth has had in all these different local variations I think is, is just so interesting because it takes on different regional flavor wherever it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm intrigued by the, uh, the 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 trees. That would be that would be fun to see. <laughs> what obviously, you know, I I think we'll get to this in a second. You know, Juneteenth has become you know more part of the lexicon, if you will. You know, uh, our company, History Factory, we are recognizing it as a holiday for the first time in our history this year, and I know many many other companies are 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 doing that. And obviously, all of this is, is triggered by uh, you know many of the events of the last year um, and and the black uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what parallels do you see, um, kind of with in terms of what we're going through right now as a country and and um, our our challenges with racism that seem to be I don't know if it's I don't know if they're worse or if it's just that they've sort of bubbled back up to the surface. But it certainly feels um, it certainly feels more challenging than it has in, in my lifetime. I mean, you know, for those of us who were born after the civil rights movement, you know, there was this element of, you know, you know, this is history and we're on this kind of continual sort of road of progress. And I know, you know, again, I live in Charlottesville. So our community here has experienced this in a very personal and traumatic way in the last few years. So I'm just curious from your sort of perspective, you know, how, how do you think about this period we're going through in the broader context of the American experience? Yeah, it's a, a great and a, a big question. Um, and as you said, I think most of us are kind of taught, at least in traditional history settings, to think about history as kind of a straight progress line, right? That things, bad things might've existed in our nation's history, but then either good people came together or sort of the bad people were defeated and the country made progress, right? We moved closer to our founding ideals of, of democracy and freedom. Um, but I think, as you know, since you're deeply involved in, in sort of historical study, um, that, that process is much more cyclical when you actually sort of get into the details of it. And in particular with African-American history, there's always been kind of an ebb and a flow that things move forward, but then almost often there's a, a strong sort of backlash or push against that tends to, to move things backwards. And so thinking about the, the moments that come before the kind of period we're living through right now, I can think of several. Um, and they often, although not exclusively, are, are linked to periods just after wars, when it looks like African-Americans, African-American communities might have more political rights, more political freedoms, more economic rights. And so the ones that come to mind for me would be thinking about the end of the Civil War and that period of Reconstruction, where it really looks like the country is going to be put on a new trajectory. African-Americans are going to have the, the freedoms that are promised um, with the Emancipation Proclamation, with the, the Reconstruction Amendments. But that opportunity is very quickly foreclosed. And then we have a sort of the dark... Um, dark century of, of Jim Crow segregation and the kind of American apartheid that goes along with that. If you think about both the two world wars, World War I and World War II, um, in both those cases, you have African-Americans serving their country bravely um, in segregated units, but thinking that by proving their patriotism, they'll be able to come home and enjoy some of the freedom and democracy that in theory America is fighting for. And in fact, the, the exact opposite happens, that because African-Americans come back, they wear their uniforms with pride, they feel proud of their military service, there's actually a quite a violent um, uh, pushback and violent um, 
sort of outbreaks uh, of mob violence against black communities immediately after World War I and again after World War II, where in many cases you have black veterans lynched while wearing their military uniforms because they're seen to be too proud of their, their military service. And then, as you mentioned, the civil rights era. Um, so I think we, the story we like to tell about the civil rights era is that um, civil rights activists kind of bravely came together. Politicians recognized the, the sort of urgency of the moment. We got key civil rights legislation and it sort of set the, the country on a, a better, more equal colorblind, colorblind path. That's true in part, um, but it's also, we have to understand the intense resistance that existed to civil rights, both in the South and in the North throughout the 1950s and 60s. And that a lot of the um, political wins that happened in the 1960s were very quickly rolled back in the 1970s, 80s in terms of school desegregation, in terms of uh, voting rights and, and political participation. And so when I think about our, our present moment, I think we're living through a similar set of things. Um, I think for a large number of Americans, uh, President Obama's election was that moment where they thought black people had gone too far. They'd gotten too much, uh, uh, too much, or sort of too close to the, the American dream. Um, and I think we're, we're living through this kind of moment of, of backlash and pushback now. Um, I think in terms of where that might sort of take us in the future, um, I, the question I get often is like whether 2020 and 2021 is a turning point or whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic. Um, I think for me, I, I choose to be optimistic about things uh, in part because I know by studying history that the question about whether any given moment is a turning point or not is about what people do or don't do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think for a lot of people, this last year, year and a half has been a, a real moment of reckoning to understand how deeply entrenched racism is uh, in the United States and how we really have to look at the, the structures and policies that have upheld uh, racism and white supremacy for so many years. And I think if people are, are committed to trying to put the country on a different, different trajectory, um, then I think this really could be a, a different moment. Um, but it, fundamentally, it's about what people choose to do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a great answer. And thank you for that. And I think, and to your point, as I mentioned before, and no doubt, I'm sure, as you know, um, uh, especially, of course, because I know you you consult with companies, um, you know, the Juneteenth has become, I think, uh, sort of a, 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 you know, a symbol uh, in a small way that uh, that that uh, corporate America seems to be, you know, stepping up in more of a uh, proactive way, I think, than they have in the past on this issue. And um, from your perspective, what, what would you like to see companies and, and workforces do um, now that they're recognizing Juneteenth and, and, and employees all over the country get an extra day off in the summer, which is nice. Um, but what, what would you like to see? Um, you know, what would you, what would you counsel a client in terms of what would you like a company or their employees to do to, to recognize uh, Juneteenth? Yeah, I'm actually very excited that more companies, more larger communities are recognizing Juneteenth. I think really up until 2020, it, it was primarily uh, a holiday for the Black community. Um, and I think it's still obviously a, a holiday that comes out of the Black community. It's always going to be rooted in the Black community. Uh, but I'm excited that more people are, are trying to learn and trying to educate themselves about what Juneteenth is about. For corporate clients, including the ones I'll be speaking to in the next couple of weeks, my message is you have to embrace the holiday in its entirety. Um, I think you can't just selectively choose what parts of it you want to engage with. Um, when I think about Juneteenth, it's a time for honesty and joy, um, both of which we need now more than ever. And I think one pitfall might be focusing just on the kind of more celebratory aspects or the, the kind of cookout aspect of Juneteenth, that it's it's not just sort of Black People's Independence Day. It's not just a moment to, um, to have cookouts and have the kind of celebration and, and music and dance. We have to also reckon honestly with the history. Um, and I think we don't have Juneteenth if we can't talk about the history of slavery in the United States, the history of emancipation, um, but also the history of Black Americans who 
continue to fight for generations to achieve actual freedom and actual equality. Um, so as a historian, I'm always in favor of more people thinking and talking and engaging seriously with history. Um, and I think Juneteenth offers this opportunity in a way that um, most companies don't have the opportunity to really sort of think and sit with history in meaningful ways. And so that's what I would love to see more, more and more companies do with Juneteenth, not just this year, but hopefully in the future as well, is really embrace the entirety of the holiday, learn more about it and understand um, what does it mean for us today in 2021 to be thinking about Juneteenth um, as, as this important moment in our nation's history. Yeah. Before we go, uh, I, I know you, you mentioned before um, uh, uh, World War One and World War Two, and I, I believe your next book is on the topic of World War Two. Could you share more about that? Yeah, th thanks for asking about that. So my next book is called Half American. Uh, it's about uh, Black Americans fighting World War II, both at home and abroad, and it'll be published next year, hopefully next fall, by Viking Books. Um, the basic idea of the book is trying to understand what World War II looked like from the Black perspective. A couple of key things emerge. Uh, it really kind of changes the dates by which we understand World War II. So for Black Americans, World War II starts before Pearl Harbor. Um, they see the rise of fascism in Europe. They see the rise of, not, of Nazi Germany and what the Nazis are doing to the Jews and see very clear connections with what's going on in the Jim Crow South. And so by the mid-1930s, Black Americans are already drawing these parallels and are really uh, raising, sounding alarms about what's happening in Europe and want to be part of, part of the fight. Um, of course, during the war, the military remains segregated and Black Americans do everything they can to participate in the war effort and do a really tremendous job uh, on the logistical and supply side of supporting the Allied war effort. And one of the arguments I end up making in the book is that I, I don't think the Americans and allies would have won the war militarily without the contributions of black troops, that black troops often weren't in the combat roles, but they were the kind of essential workers of the war. They were the ones who were building runways, clearing jungles, um, moving, um, moving all sorts of goods and ammunition and supplies on ships, off planes, uh, really making it possible for the allies to fight and win this massive global war. Uh, I think in ways that people haven't really fully appreciated Black Americans were really critical to the winning of the war effort. And then at the end of the war, um, the war doesn't really end for Black Americans in 1945. A lot of these Black veterans, they come home and they keep fighting for civil rights. Um, the most obvious example is Medgar Evers, who's part of a group called the Red Ball Express, who uh, move uh, supplies after, after D-Day from Normandy uh, inland into France, help uh, make it possible for General Patton's army to make the kind of lightning rushes they do um, uh, into France to, to push back the, the Nazis. Meg Rivers come back, comes back, he's 19 at the time, and immediately becomes a civil rights activist in Mississippi in 1945, and does that until he's assassinated in 1963. And so for me, what's powerful about the, the story of Black Americans in World War II is that it's really a story about what our democracy and freedom actually going to mean. And for Black Americans, that's what World War II is about. And they, they fought that war, not just during the war years, but, but for decades afterwards. Well, we'll look forward to having you back on to hear more about that when the book gets published. So awesome. Look, look um, forward to talking to you more then. Yeah. Well, Professor Delmont, thank you so much uh, for your time and your insights and, uh, and happy, happy Juneteenth and uh, have a good summer. We'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Jason. It was a real pleasure talking to you and happy Juneteenth to everyone at your company. Thank you again to Professor Matthew Delmont for his insights. I really enjoyed our conversation. And one thing that really resonated with me was his reference that African-Americans in the early years of recognizing Juneteenth would recite the Emancipation Proclamation and the context of that ritual and experience for people who had been slaves or had loved ones who had been slaves. 
And so in recognition of Juneteenth, we'll close with a reading of the Emancipation Proclamation, courtesy of LibriVox's short nonfiction collection and read by Winston Tharp. For more information and resources, check out the notes in this episode. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. I'm Jason Dressel for History Factory Plugged In. The Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. By the President of the United States of America. A Proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September, A.D. 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States, containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January, A.D. 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such states shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do, on this first day of January, A.D. 1863, and in accordance with my purpose to do so, publicly proclaimed for the full period of one hundred days from the first day above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the United States, the following, to wit, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Palquemines, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James, Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Lafourche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomac, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, 
I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are, and henceforth shall be, free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all case, when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. End of the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln Read by Winston Tharp All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.